This is the English Heritage Podcast. Welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to make sure you get the English Heritage Podcast delivered to your chosen platform every Thursday. Now, this week you join us in Herefordshire in the West Midlands, famous for its cider, Hereford Cathedral, the Malvern Hills, and once being part of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Mercia. But today we're going back further into time as we explore the history of a 5,000-year-old Neolithic tomb. I'm meeting Wynne Scott, who's a properties curator for English Heritage. Hello, Charles. Welcome to Arthur's Stone. Oh, hello, Wynne. <laughs> I nearly Wynne. slipped then. You nearly <laughs> slipped. I nearly slipped on the style, I think. <laughs> Lovely day for it. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? Although I think rain's predicted for later, but there you yeah, go. Yeah, we are expecting some thundery showers later yeah. on. So you and walked up from the village? Yes, walked up from the car park down at the bottom of the hill, and I've got out of breath, but I've really got a good sense of the landscape and where we're standing. So. Yeah, it's a good idea to park down there, actually, because the, there's only a small lay-by here, and it's often full, especially in the summer. So if you can, walk up here, and then you can leave the spaces up here for disabled people, because... The lay-by is right next to the monument. And, and here we've got just this amazing view across the Golden Valley. And where you walked up from, Dorstone down the bottom, is the local village with a pub and a shop and all the rest of it. And the Golden Valley is such a beautiful area to explore. If you look over there... To the right-hand side. To the west, yeah, to the right of the village, you can see Hay Bluff in the distance. There's an angle in the, in the horizon, a sharp angle. So that's above Hay on Wye. And a bit further to the south, we're looking across to the Black Mountains. And so that's all about seven miles away to Hay-on-Wye. And then the other way is Hereford, about 14 miles away. And we're in a very elevated position here, aren't we? Because we can see over what's called, I guess, from this sign, which is yes. here for a charity walk. They've, <laughs> they've got a frame and it says the Golden Valley Half Marathon Charity Walk. And there's a frame where you can sort of <laughs> look into the distance and it's almost framing the landscape. Yeah, it is. And I, well, whether that'll be here when uh, people come up and walk, I think it's just temporary, this one. But yes, this is the beautiful Golden Valley. And it is, it's almost God's own country. You know, it's such a beautiful place to explore. And we're right up on the ridge here, which is a perfect place to put this amazing stone monument. For English heritage, I think this is one of our best. I mean, we do have a wonderful collection of these earliest monuments from the Neolithic across the country. Places like West Kennet, Stony Littleton Longbarrow, Wayland Smithy, Beela Snap, Nymphsfield, many of them in the Cotswolds. Yes, and I love how, as we've arrived and climbed over the stile here, and we're sort of climbing up to this summit in a way. Yeah. We've got the monument straight in front of us with this footpath marker in front yeah. of it, <laughs> but it's almost inviting us in because there's that gap between the stones. You're looking into a sort of cave really, aren't you? And that capstone is what gives the place its name. Arthur's Stone and actually it's it's wrapped up in legend of course you know in medieval times particularly they love to love to associate anything ancient with King Arthur yeah so that's how it got its name and uh, King Arthur is supposed to have slain a giant on top of that great big stone so let's get a closer look then because obviously as you've described we're sort of looking at a, a hole almost a quasi cave yeah it's obviously a Stone Age monument but what are we looking at as we walk around this perimeter? 
Well, I suppose we call it these chambered tombs. Although there are a lot of archaeologists who would say, well, perhaps we shouldn't call it a tomb, because although you get these chambers that have remains in them, often human remains, unfortunately no human remains here, because the soil is too acid, but many of these tombs do have bones. So one thinks of these primarily as burial monuments, but many of them have these enormous mounds, which are more than burial. They seem to be big markers in the landscape. And many of them are clearly used for hundreds of years after their initial construction as a burial mound or a burial chamber. So their functions are much more complicated than simply a burial place. I mean, if you think of a church today, we wouldn't say it was a burial monument, yet it has lots of burials in it. You know, there's, you know it's surrounded by tombstones outside and it has lots of uh, tombs inside the churches but primarily they're meeting places to share an experience that might be a religious experience here this could be religious or it could be a social experience where people gathered and met so clearly they were more than just a burial monument and they're an experience for people in modern times now you've described the arthur's stone scenario you know but there's also the C.S. Lewis connection. Indeed. Is that right? Yeah. He was based in the area for a while, C.S. Lewis, the author of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And, of course, there's that wonderful bit in where Aslan, the lion, sits on top of the stone and it's split asunder by lightning. You know, it's a very dramatic moment in the story. And um, this capstone, and when we look at it now, that solid lump of stone, the size of a car, if you like, that's perched on these upright stones to create that sort of cave feature... That large stone is split asunder, just as it is in, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So um, we're pretty sure this was his inspiration. This predates Arthurian legends, though, and C.S. Lewis, of course. How far back into history does this site go? Well, we're talking the beginning of farming in this country 6,000 years ago. We can call that 4,000 BC, or we could call it the 40th century BC, if you like. By the 38th century people are building monuments like this in this area. We think this is about 38th, 37th century. That's when most of these chambered tombs belong, that period, certainly in southern England, belong to. When you go across to the continent, like Brittany, they're earlier than that. But generally, farming starts in Britain around about 4000 BC, and that's when we get the first monuments ever. You know, it's only 6,000 years ago. Compared with a million years of hunting and gathering, this is a very dramatic, it's a more important than date, I would say, than 1066. This is the one you need to remember, 4000 BC. And within a couple of centuries, they're building amazing things like this. It really makes the phrase set in stone uh, <laughs> have extra meaning because it's, it's a real marker in history. It really is. If you had a look through their house, you probably wouldn't find much stone in there at all. Yet we call them Stone Age. But when they want to make something permanent for the ancestors then they really go to town using massive stones, which is very fortunate for us because they become very visible. So we're inside the wooden fence now, Wynne, which is around the monument, and we can get a closer look at the opening. The first thing that strikes me is that this is not a Neolithic tomb that people can go inside, really. It looks well, quite low down. It's probably on me, and I'm just <laughs> over six foot. It's, yeah, you have it's, to crouch. You have to I'm, crouch. I'm going to get down on my knees and, and get right inside. Yeah, I suppose you could, if there wasn't that big part of the capstone that's collapsed inside, you could get a dozen people inside the chamber, originally, I would have thought. Not that they would have 
come in here very much. I wouldn't thought I would have thought this was a place to place the dead, or at least the bones of the dead. So you could get quite a lot of people in here, but we have no remains of those people. And actually, I think the damage, a lot of the damage has happened because so many people have crawled into here over the centuries, you know. So how much archaeology, intact archaeology, there is left in this soil is probably very minimal, unfortunately. Yeah. Do you want to come out and we can describe also yeah. the other stones? Because the site is effectively two main capstones, is that right? Well, it's supposed to be one, so it's split down the middle, but then there's a part of the bedding plane that's cleaved the, underneath of one of the stones and let it fall into the chamber. So I think the intention, certainly in antiquity, was that this was one big capstone perched on these upright, what we call in archaeology, orthostats, upright stones. And they so look we, like headstones in a way, but maybe a little bit wider in places. They're about, so they're, they're about four foot high, you know, they're the size of a child, if you like, but they're big, fat stones holding this massive 25-tonne capstone up in the air. And this is just up to sort of chest height, really, isn't it? So you can crawl in there. But there's more stones around the back. Yeah, so um, if we come around this way so, to the left. So the big one we call the dolmen. That's the central dolmen. And we think that might be the first phase of the monument. And that a later phase, maybe, they've added a passageway at the back. But we're now pretty certain that that passageway does not lead into our big dolmen. It's actually a separate feature altogether. It's a separate passage that probably had its own burial remains. Maybe it's another part of the family or another family that buried their dead inside that chamber. So this passageway, this sprinkling of stones behind in this sort of curve, almost like a tail, yeah. with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, I think. Yeah, there's more here, actually sort of under the grass. You can see this passageway. This passageway is uh, two or three metres long and then it curves round and there's a sort of side passage. So this is what we see in a lot of these chambered tombs, a passageway leading to a perhaps a T-shaped, you know, or a chamber at the other end. But as I say, that we think this is a completely separate thing from the great dolmen with the great big capstone on the top of it. And actually, as you look around the cairn here, so we're on this great raised ground, you can see that the land drops away on all sides of this whole monument. And you can see in this, after this dry weather we've been having, some very green areas on the mound and some quite raw brown rocky areas and it's quite possible that what we're seeing is the remains of further chambers these could have been stone lined chambers or timber lined chambers well i can see a clue in fact if i come forward a couple of meters here yeah there's a couple of stones, stones here right in the ground which are just jutting out of the turf in this sort of um, parched area yeah i think they're smaller stones actually but they're part of the cairn so and what do you um, what do you mean by cairn cairn is is a mound made of stones essentially so you know with barrows we sometimes call them earthen long barrows or round barrows and sometimes we call them cairns um, so particularly on moorland you know like dartmoor or the peak district or whatever you get them made out of stones you know for anything from a tennis ball size to a rugby ball size you know and i think much of this cairn is made of that kind of stone but you can see these dark green patches in it that intriguing we'd love to know what these are but we're doing it very tentatively and it's a protected monument this it's not in our protection it's in state protection and we have to apply for, via historic england to the department of culture media and sport for permission to excavate here and once you excavate these you, you're kind of destroying the information so generally it's done very surgically and very accurately
So bearing that in mind and what we hope to discover at a future date, what do we know so far? So far? Well, as we look down towards Dorstone, we're looking over the hedge there, just outside the mound. And in that field, excavations were done over two seasons. And to our amazing surprise, we found these massive post holes, a line of them. And this is unique for these. Like a corridor. Like a corridor. Yeah, like an avenue. You know, if you think of Avebury and these stone avenues, this was an avenue of wooden posts, which is actually new for chamber tombs of this period. Avebury and places are much later. They're late Neolithic. But for the early Neolithic, this is really unusual. So we found a single line of big post holes. These are what? Two feet, three feet across, or if you want it in metres, half a metre across. You know, these are the big post holes and quite deep as well. So they clearly had timber posts. And then last year, they excavated a bit further over and found a second line. So we had an avenue, a pair of rows of these. And then we found there were pieces of stone still in some of them. So clearly the wooden posts had been replaced with stone orthostats at some stage. So there was a stone avenue running up to this. And it's pointing out towards the Black Mountains. We don't know exactly what it is. There's a steep drop down in the field there. So I don't know whether there was a pathway going down to the valley. Maybe that's where they kept their cattle. You know, maybe they lived down there. We have all these wonderful monuments, but it's very difficult to find their houses. They don't survive so well. They're made out of big substantial timbers, but they may have been laid on um, beams or they may have made post holes, but we're just not finding them. So we haven't found where these people lived. And they may have been fairly sort of mobile, that's a possibility too. Were these corridors connected to this monument in direct alignment? Direct alignment, absolutely. They run up to, um, and we found evidence of a palisade, in other words, closely set wooden posts in a line curving round the mound. And that palisade was actually revetting, supporting an earthen mound, which we'd never known about before. So the current theory is this whole site perhaps started as a dolmen and an earthen mound. And then later on, they start putting a cairn over it and they have chambers like that passage at the back and these possible embayments here. So it's terrific complexity. And those stones are put in centuries after this thing was built. So this place was an important site from, say, 38th century BC to, say, the 30th century BC. And it's always been a burial site, fundamentally. We think. Well, it starts as a burial site. We haven't got very much on those burials, but... I think this is more, from then on, it's a constant marker in everybody's minds. It's the thing that brings all these communities together. And it's quite possible, when you see that there's other things going on beyond, like these avenues, that this is a performance area. You know, so in Christianity, we'd be thinking of, about uh, services and mass and things. This may be where they did actual rituals, or it might be other less religious activities like dancing around the maypole type thing. They may have come here to dance, to sing, to have parties. To look at the view. (laughs) Or to look at the view. I mean, it's a fantastic place to gather. And there's good level ground around it, you know, so you can get a few hundred people in the surrounding patch on the top of this hill here easily. And I think that when so much investment has gone into this this mound with these massive stones and the construction of the whole thing and the, the history of the thing with the discovering, we're finding it isn't just a single event. It's being changed and adapted over hundreds of years. This is a significant place in this community's uh, life. And uh, they're coming here over and over again. This is probably where they meet 
the girl from the next village, you know, and, and that sort of thing, and they get married. And talking of that, this is may- maybe where the wedding ceremonies happened, you know, as well. All sorts of rites of passage through our lifetimes, the individual's lifetime, you know, like marriages and death, but it might also be for the community as well, you know, the anniversary of when they first came here, the solstices, all sorts of things to celebrate, and this is probably where they gathered. That's a really holistic description because we n- normally talk about these things as being very centred on funerary rites, death, the afterlife, yeah. all that sort of thing. They must be so much more than that. You know, w- when you look at the amount of investment that goes in and the way that it carries on being used, even after those initial... Uh, I mean, I can't talk about this particular site, but other sites. We've got dates for the bones right at the beginning of the, of the monument story. But then there aren't bones later on. Well, sometimes there are, but it does seem that uh, they are a living part of the living community for centuries and centuries. Given that it's 6,000 years old, we think, and we don't have bones that have been uh, recovered because it's an acidic soil and they've disappeared effectively, how long do we think that this site was actively used for by Neolithic people and then people after that? Well, one of the significant things is when they replaced those wooden posts, that avenue of wooden posts, with the stones. We actually found a type of pottery there called Peterborough ware, which actually is centuries after the pottery you get when these things are first built. So we're talking more towards 3,200, 3,000 BC for that. That suggests, if this is 37th, 38th century, we're talking about six, 800 years of use, But then, just because we don't find pottery after that doesn't mean to say it stopped being used by these people. You know, if you go and excavate a church today, you'll find 16th century stuff in it, but you won't necessarily find... If you're lucky, you might find some stuff from the 21st century if you dug one in a few hundred years' time. So things like that can be used. It's, It's like Stonehenge. It could have been used for many, many centuries, but doesn't necessarily leave an archaeological signature behind. But... That Peterborough ware, that pottery that we've got here, does suggest that they're here many centuries after the initial construction. That's always a tantalising question, that one, isn't it, because Mm. of the evidence. But here we are standing on this mound, it's pretty visible. If you drive past it, it's still very visible. It's not like it's hiding. People would have used it, seen it, stood on it like we are now. It's interesting you should talk about hiding, actually, because one of the thing features... I'll, I'll take you over to this, mm. this side of the mound here, uh, quite near the lay-by where it's possible to park, a small lay-by, and just over the fence here, you can see where we excavated last summer. And down under here, we found beautiful dry stone walling. So it's the, the local stone... But it's, it's uh, well, I won't say wafer thin, it's a sort of centimetre thick, actually, a lot of it, or two or three centimetres. It's quite thin, but it's layered, beautifully layered. So you have that lovely face of dry stone walling. But there's multiple wall- versions of that wall. So behind that wall, you'll find there's another one. So they've kind of rebuilt, but then they seem to have taken stones and laid them on the front as if to hide it. So I think there's a big conversation going on between the people and this monument so sometimes they're embellishing it they're changing it they're altering it but sometimes they're kind of shutting it away with these stones they're kind of masking it you know maybe it's a fear of the 
dead or maybe it's out of respect, you know, covering it over, like putting a shroud over something because it's so hallowed, you know. We don't know exactly the reasons for that, but what we are seeing for the first time is this amazing laying of, of some of these thin stones against the dry stone wall. It's an extraordinary phenomenon. I don't think it's ever been seen before. Well, you say that, but um, <laughs> I know that having visited... Um, Wayland Smithy in South Oxfordshire on a recent episode they have done a reconstruction uh, I think it was a 20th century reconstruction of dry stone walling so so yes it has oh no we've got dry stone walling for lots of these monuments so Stony Littleton Mm. Long Barrow near Bath a beautiful Long Barrow with a lovely chambered thing as you say a Wayland Smithy in West Kennet and others like Nymphsfield and Yuli the Long Barrow Hetty Pegler's Tump these seven Cotswold tombs as we call them frequently have this dry stone walling because it's available in the area so the dry stone walling isn't unique that's common but the fact that actually you take a you take one of these stones and lay upright against that dry stone walling to mask it that is new and so far unseen anywhere else would this site have a connection with Wayland smithy and other sites that people can visit we were told in the podcast episode 219 at uh, Wayland Smithy that West Kennet Longbarrow, another burial chamber in nearby Wiltshire, appeared to inspire Wayland Smithy. It could do. I think we, we're gradually tying down the dates because, you know, a century ago we didn't know when these belonged. We just knew they were Stone Age. We didn't know what the dates were particularly. There were some good guesses. And then radiocarbon dating came along in the late 50s and... Um, and, and then they managed to calibrate it in the 70s. And, and then more recently, they're using Bayesian analysis, a statistical technique, to try and sharpen up the dates. It's a bit like um, altering the focus on the, the Hubble telescope, you know, where it, where it was out of focus, and they managed to refocus it using some amazing statistics. Well, here, Bayesian analysis has suddenly sharpened up the dates. So we're not talking about centuries anymore for these, you know, we're not saying... Ah, oh, this is roughly 37th century or 38th century. We can now talk about specific decades for Wayland Smithy and West Kennet. And when we can do that, we can say, ah, oh, this one came first and therefore influenced the other one. I mean, yes. I mean, I think they'd be aware of their neighbours' ones, even though it's, you know, f- say 50 miles away. It's a tradition that's right across the country. So this particular community invested a lot into putting this massive stone there. But um, everybody did things in their own ways. And in, in the Seven and Cotswolds area, they're creating these monuments in a particular style. But you'll go to somewhere else like Yorkshire, got a different style again. If you go up to Scotland, different style again of chambered tombs. These are regional patterns. It definitely isn't sort of one nation or one material culture. These are different communities. They'll be aware of each other. And the people living here would have intimate knowledge of the other communities you know when you look into the distance down the valley and up the valley there would be other communities living here right across southern britain at least probably most of britain you'd always be in contact with the next community for centuries you'd you'd know them you'd intermarry and all that sort of thing so so there's lots of communication going on standing at this vantage point where we are on the i suppose the bottom end we can see the stones and obviously they're quite jumbled some appear to have fallen they're resting within the cairn or within the turf and yeah. they're at slightly different angles it's all it's like someone's played with a you know like a jenga set and it, it, it all fell over it is i suppose um 
so this suggests that these have sort of shifted over time and there is some shifting and collapse going on yeah and actually right in front of us so we are standing at the front of the mound the current view is that this was a long trapezoidal mound with a dolmen in it and as i said that dolmen is probably the first thing that's constructed and later on it it ends up not being in the middle of the mound or the cairn so these typical seven cotswold long barrows or long cairns have horns at the front <laughs> so they have these projections so where i'm standing here we're on the flat end of it. the trapezoidal shape and there's it's a, widest where we're standing that's right at the wide end but it's actually inset there so there's often a little courtyard yeah oh, okay a forecourt and at the back of that forecourt if you go to Bela Snap, which is one of our other sites in the Cotswolds you'll see there's a big flat stone facing you as you stand at the front of the monument and it's a blind portal. It's a dead entrance. It's just a stone. Behind it was, sto was stone or earth. And so there we are. This is probably an interned entrance with a horn to my left and a horn to the right with that dry stone walling. In front of me, this blocking portal stone, a blind doorway, if you like. And then beyond it, that dolmen, that massive capstone perched on those stones. And then at the back of the whole cairn, you've got this other little uh, passageway and possibly other passageways and chambers within the place as well that have all gone. And this summer, we're going to be returning to the site and uh, excavating around in particular areas, as I say, surgical interventions into the mound over here. And there are going to be other excavations going on around here too. So you've brought me over now, Wynne, to the Arthur's Stone information panel, and it describes the site and also the greater landscape, which I think is really useful because it tells us about the rich archaeology in, in the entire area. Yeah, I mean, archaeology has come to this area quite late in a way. It's only in recent years that people have been studying it intensively. There tends to be a big bias towards Wessex, you know, and the Chalklands. And this is a much more difficult area to study in a way. But lots of flint scatters. This map shows lots of red spots where there have been lots of flint scatters found in the field. So we can see there's Neolithic activity going on here. A couple of tombs are shown. There's another tomb at Cross Lodge. And also the Dorstone Hill settlement where they found these massive long wooden halls, these long rectangular wooden halls. Which is between those two purple blobs. <laughs> between the blobs, yeah. So it does show you there's a lot of activity going on in the valley. But we invest quite a lot of money in these lovely panels. But then an excavation like this starts to show that we're all wrong. And that's, that's why we do it, actually, because th this is such important research. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about those excavations then, which are taking place this summer. People who've, um, who are big into their history documentaries will know that there's been archaeological digs here before because it featured on the BBC's Digging for Britain series. It did, it did. Alice Roberts was up here last summer seeing the excavations. It was just a visit. Of course, they were here for a whole month. About 40 uh, excavators from the universities and from America were excavating here under the direction of Julian Thomas and Keith Ray. And a lot of the excavation was going on out in the field where we had the avenue. And there were two small excavations within the cairn of Arthur Stone itself, one on that dry stone walling and one just uh, in front of us here. But this coming year, we're going to be tackling something different. We don't know where the edge of the mound is at this side. At this side, perhaps I should call it a cairn, but we don't know where it is. So is it a couple of metres in front of us where we can see a parch mark? And if it is, does it meet 
the where the passage comes out. So that passage that comes out the back of the mound, is that where the entrance was, or did that passage lead out further? So we're going to be excavating a small area around that and in the passage to try to understand what's going on there. So it'll establish where that passage stopped and where the mound stopped over here. But there's going to be other excavations as well, not all within the guardianship monument, the scheduled monument. In the field over there, where um, on the other side of the lane, where people will be parking, I think, we're going to be excavating a suspected mound or cairn up there, which might be another one of these, but that's been completely destroyed. So there's other things going on in the landscape around here. So when people come to see, that you, can, you can book in on Eventbrite through our website for one of three tours a day and you'll get shown around by our wonderful English Heritage volunteers and told all about it. And you'll be taken around the excavations on, on the Arthurstone Mound itself, but also over there in the field where we're hoping to find more Neolithic material. What are you hoping to find then? Because obviously we've got this lane, this road, which goes past the monument. Yeah. Uh, where we're standing right now, it goes on our left. Yeah. But obviously with the trapezoidal shape, as you've described, and we're looking at the picture on the uh, information panel here, yeah. it tapers underneath the road and into the distance and past that field that you just described. Well, so yes. you've got a road in the way. Got a, yeah, the road has cut through the mound. It was a long barrow or a long cairn at one stage, and the road has cut through it, probably in medieval times or, or even earlier. So we've never really known where the tail of that mound is. And some excavations were, took place a few years ago in the field to our left, and they couldn't find it. We think possibly the orientation of the whole long barrow is slightly different, and it may well be in the, the other field. So we're yet to find that out. But the main excavations on the other side of the lane are going to be at the top of the hill, if you like, the top of the slope at the other side of the field, where this other possible monument is there. But uh, we'll, we'll wait to see. It's going to yeah. be very exciting, actually. I mean, we'll have about 40, uh, 40 staff working on the site for that whole month. We start at the end of June, basically stripping turf, out in the field there and a little bit here and then our tours start about three days later after they've started so that so you will see some action rather than just turf stripping and we're also avoiding the last three days when when things of course being backfilled and and re-turfed because we have to get the mound looking exactly as it did before so that our visitors can enjoy it of course who's involved in the archaeological digs students and universities Yes, so um, there's the whole project beneath Hay Bluff has been led by Manchester University and uh, Cardiff University also takes part now and also field school in uh, the Institute of Field Studies in, uh, in America send trainees over here because they, can, they not only get expert advice in how to conduct an excavation, you know, all the scientific techniques. It's not something you can do, you know, uh, it takes a lot of practice to be able to dig properly and to, to shave off the layers, really. There's a whole load of techniques like drawing and things that you have to learn. So th these students from America and Britain come here to learn all those archaeological techniques, but of course they're actually doing it on a, on a real piece of archaeology, a really important piece of archaeology. So they're getting the experience of finding out stuff that was going on in the 38th century BC. With this team of archaeologists from across the Atlantic and domestic as well, yeah. that's a lot of people to organise and 
there's going to be a lot of results, hopefully, to share. How long will it take for all the results to be shared and we can do another update on the podcast? <laughs> I, think, I think it'll be some years because a lot has got to be worked out on this. Most real archaeological excavations produce a lot of material that has to be analysed. Pottery that has to be drawn, samples that have to be taken, dating samples, for example, soil samples that give you an idea of the levels of phosphates and all sorts of things in the soil. So there's a lot of scientific work. I often compare it to moon rock. You know, when you collect moon rock and then you're working on it for years, an archaeological excavation can actually be really quite brief, like a month, but it can actually take, say, five years to digest and process all that information and then to write up all the results. So this and the other sites will all probably, I guess, will come together as a large volume that will go through all the scientific reports and summaries and an understanding of, of what this site means in terms of the Neolithic in Britain. I suppose until then, then, it's uh, listen to this space and then if you are waiting still for a podcast update, then watch this space. Come and have a look at Arthur's Stone because it's a really beautiful place and uh, really worth looking at on your way through to somewhere else in this lovely Herefordshire countryside. So thanks for talking to us, Wynne. Appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be time travelling with Stephen and Virginia Courtauld, the owners of Elton Palace during the 1930s, to learn about their exotic adventures around the world. It must be more than 100,000 miles. And that's just a trip they did on the Virginia. If you're counting all the cruising they did as well, it must be hundreds of thousands. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>